good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. Thank you for joining us on this weekly program. We're coming to you from the Coming Home Network International Studios in Ohio, but we're coming to you over EWTN Radio. Our guest today is Father Frederick Wirth. Hello, Father. Fred, thanks for joining us in the studio. Thank you for having me, Marcus. Um, uh, Father Fred joined us on the Journey Home program Monday night to share his journey, and it's always difficult to take a whole life and uh, you know cram it down into an hour with all the, especially the, as you even hinted at that the Lord had used a lot of miraculous ways to open your heart and mind to his beauty and, and the beauty of the church, Father. So it's, uh, but thank you for sharing that. And those of you listening that have had a chance to hear his uh, witness on the Journey Home program, of course, go to edebdattend.com where you can listen to the audio program. And this week, of course, the, the replay of the program, you can see the schedule for that. But for those of you that didn't see Monday night's program, Reverend Worth Jr. was born May, born in 19... I'm going to give it all away right now <laughs> on your bio, Father. <laughs> Let him have it. <laughs> uh, was born in Radford, Virginia, and with the exception of his military service, lived all his life in Virginia until his ordination to the priesthood. He graduated from Marion High School and attended Virginia Military Institute. He served as an officer in the United States Air Force and, for the most part, as an aircraft maintenance officer in the 55th Aerospace Rescue and Recovery Squadron stationed at Eglund Air Force Base in Florida. Father Worth then attended law school at the University of Virginia, receiving his Juris Doctorate degree. He practiced law in southwestern Virginia for 25 years. Father Worth married Patricia Ann Guy in 1970 and is a father of two sons and one daughter and the grandfather of five. Uh, and I don't think it mentions here in your bio, but you were brought up Presbyterian, yes, trained Presbyterian, and uh, but went through a, a, a kind of a wandering during college, looking at some of the Eastern religions, um, and then uh, after a number of years of marriage, the Lord opened your heart to uh, in a fairly infused way, right? I mean, it's almost twenty years, about nineteen years of marriage before. Before you in- miraculously intervened in my life, some people have to be hit upside the head. You know, <laughs> I have to be. And up until then, you had no interest whatsoever in it, and in, in really were not practicing. Not in Catholicism, right? Okay, and uh, but this is an important part of your journey. After the death of uh, of his wife and daughter in an automobile accident in September 2002, Father Worth entered Pope St. John the 23rd Seminary in Weston, Massachusetts. In 2003, and was ordained a priest for the Diocese of Charlotte, North Carolina, in June 2007. And as I read that, it sounds so, you know, straightforward. But there was a lot that happened in there, which you talked about Monday night, uh, as you were on a retreat at St. Meinrad's. And on that retreat, the Lord got your attention with that proverbial two by four uh, to call you to be open to the priesthood. Father Worth's first assignment as a priest was as parochial vicar of Holy Family Catholic Church in Clemens, North Carolina. And then in July of 2008, Father Worth was transferred to Mars Hill, North Carolina, where he continues to serve as pastor for St. Andrew the Apostle Catholic Church and its mission church, St. Sacred Heart Catholic Church in Burnsville, North Carolina. So thank you, Father, for joining us on this program. What I try to do in this uh, radio segment is it's a bit of a follow-up to the Journey Home program. When you shared your journey on the air, you didn't talk that much about Scripture. It's, it's a condensed time. But i have you go back just a little bit. When you were Presbyterian growing up as a practicing Presbyterian and then later as a drifting Presbyterian, uh, was Scripture a big part of your life in your early days? Yes, in the early days, uh, as a smaller child with the uh, formation provided in our, you know, uh, little Presbyterian churches, it was uh, it was pretty formal. And you know, you had a catechism. There was the children's catechism and the shorter catechism. And um, Westminster, right? I I guess probably Westminster because yeah, yeah. you were I'm Scottish sure. Presbyterian sure. yeah. background there, so it was definitely yeah. Westminster. I was. And uh, uh, a very good uh, Sunday school. 
uh, with some, you know, very good mm-hmm. lay Sunday school teachers. Uh, Rosie McCarty comes to mind. Who had <laughs> me in a difficult time in my life when I was, you know, between, say, 13 and 16. <laughs> uh, but, uh, of course, that was all scripture. Uh, right. And I, I particularly appreciate the uh, uh, attention that was paid to the Old Testament uh, in Sunday school growing up, uh, uh, which w- provided later uh, a very good uh, background for, you know, understanding the fulfillment of the Old Covenant and the New. In a, uh-huh. The continuity of the church with the people of God in the Old Testament. Continuity of everything in God's plan. Yeah, you know? it really is amazing yeah. when... Uh, and I, I think it wasn't until I became a Catholic that I truly appreciated that continuity of the sacraments, of the covenant, of the family sacraments. of God, all of that, uh, even baptism as the continuity of circumcision in the Old Testament, you know, becoming a part of the family. Even justification, not merely as being saved, but as becoming a part of the family through baptism. I mean, all those things really come to come much more clear when looked at from a Catholic perspective than from our Presbyterian. I, I wasn't brought up Presbyterian, but that's where I was eventually ordained after essentially becoming a Calvinist in seminary. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of passages we could we could choose, and we've done this program long enough that it's it's uh, we eventually do some of the same passage over and over again. But I think that the key is that people come from different backgrounds in relationship to the scriptures themselves and with your former Presbyterian, and then through the, the tragedy of your, your wife and daughter, and then into the Catholic Church, and then into the priesthood, you'll come to Scripture with a little bit different experience than a lot of us do. But you chose John 6, yeah. which is certainly one of those passages. Do you remember John 6 from your Presbyterian days? No. Um, and it's funny, but then remember, I, I also was not... Uh, a thorough student. Sure. Uh, I was just a, a, you know, an average kid. Uh, but uh, as I m- remarked a minute ago, I, I, what I see, seem to remember most in Scripture was uh, Old Testament. Sure. And uh, I, don't, I wouldn't claim now that there was uh, a neglect of the New Testament. It's just that that's what I remember. Mm-hmm. But I, I remember nothing at all about uh, John 6. Uh, uh, I'm not sure... You hear Paul. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, uh, the questions of uh, pre for the Presbyterians, you, you can hear a lot about uh, the question of pre- predestination and right. also, of course, faith and works. But uh, these were dealt with as general topics, not so much in my recollection uh, by uh, uh, reference to specific scriptures and exegesis of them. Yeah. You know that what I found, if I look back on my Presbyterian <laughs> days— and you, you you describe it well. There's a there's a big emphasis on the Old Testament, and then a jump to Paul often. Mm. And I th- I'm wondering if it's because sometimes those who have such a strong emphasis on salvation by faith alone, grace alone, and not works, and such an emphasis on on recognizing that we were called and elected and predestined that. A lot of the teachings of Jesus, we're not sure what to do with those because he's calling for obedience and perfection and surrender. Submission, always, always, yeah. So what do you do with those and how do you teach those? So often the Gospels are taught the miracles to prove his divinity, to prove his word, who he is, who he, but what do we do with those sayings? As a Presbyterian or a Calvinist, you jump to Paul. You jump to Paul. And I'm wondering if that's, what do you do with this passage, John 6, from a Presbyterian standpoint? I mean, what do you do? So let me read this passage, and what I'd love to do, I'll read this, and then I'm going to ask you if you can kind of recall when this passage first got your attention on your journey. Let me read, we're not going to read all of John 6, and actually the entire chapter of John 6 is an important context. Yes. The whole... um, actually winnowing down of the crowd from the people to the leaders, to the disciples, to the twelve, down to Peter. I mean, that's really the winnowing down of this whole chapter all around the issue of of this section that we're going to look at. I'm going to read verse 52 through 56. 
The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Yeah, I don't remember seeing this as a Presbyterian. I'm sure it was there, of course. But do you remember when it first got your attention, by chance? Excuse me. Yes, it was uh, only after uh, I had been, my heart had been opened miraculously, uh, and I was in the RCI program uh, just starting uh, with Father Raleigh Houts, the Glenmary Home Ministry. Actually, the prototype RCIA, right? I mean, yeah, it yeah. was. He, it, he had developed it in mission country of, you know, the mountains of Virginia and mm-hmm. North Carolina on his own and used it, you know, successfully for many years. And uh, it was very good and began with creation and moved up. Uh, but it was in, in that process when I began to seriously uh, study uh, the foundations of the authenticity and authority of the Catholic faith, because of course I was looking for anything that would disprove, you know, what what he was sure. educating me about, and uh, of course in that process, uh, I mean, I, I started studying extensively, uh, and in, uh, in that process, of course, I, I realized that I was on an ine- inevitable path to the <laughs> to the Catholic Church, but certainly it was uh, you know at that time that I would have for the first time. Uh, considered uh, uh, John 6 as uh, anything other than uh, vaguely mystical um, and without having, which of course is absolutely contrary to, to the passage, you know, to, to, the, to the words of our Lord as, as reported. Uh, but nonetheless, that doesn't stand in our way, you know. And uh, uh, yeah, it, it, was, it was an opening of, of the eyes. When I realized how much I had missed in my education and my life and of knowledge with regard to the church, with regard to the culture, the culture of the world, the Western world, um, it was an easy step to realize also uh, how little I had been introduced to what Christianity really is. Mm-hmm. Because you had drifted into the Eastern religions trying to yeah. find truth. some connection for truth. with God out there uh, uh, to give meaning to life. And, yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, here we are with a, with a, um, a statement by, you know, jokingly, you think about celebrities who say something over the edge and, and then they're, what do you call them, the guys that are out there trying to make a name for them, you know, what do you call them, the promoters, are almost saying, why did you say that? You know, that's not going to go well. Um, we could get you going a lot faster if you just kind of erase that statement. <laughs> and if Jesus did a promo, man, it might have been this section of Scripture says, Jesus, I mean, this is going to turn some people off. Like he didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, exactly. And that's what happened. Uh-huh. That, that's exactly what happened here. Um, but one other question before we jump into it. I mean, you were brought up Presbyterian, so it would have been, an, you never grew up with, you would have had the Lord's Supper, what, once a month, once a quarter as a Scott Presbyterian? <laughs> yes, uh, I, I think they have it more frequently now. They, they have a communion thing. But uh, my recollection uh, when I was growing up that it was maybe once, once a quarter. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it was very infrequent. They passed around the, the silver tray of the little, you know, glasses of little grape shot juice. Glasses and- yeah, shot glasses <laughs> of grape juice. And uh, I think there were little cubes, tiny little cubes yep. maybe of of bread. Chunks of bread, cut up and, regular uh, bread. Yeah, and, and but you would have had the assumption purely symbolic. Purely you know, symbolic. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, when when there was leftover juice and leftover bread, it was either just consumed later or shared at the youth group or whatever it was. That's what know. we used to do. You know, I mean, <laughs> there was no sense that the that the cubes of bread or the juice had any significance whatsoever. No, and they than, weren't treated sacredly by the people who were receiving them. Even this was a it was a, I would say a profession of some faith. The act, that's all, that's what it was. It was an opportunity to profess faith in and to remember Christ what Jesus did for us. divine and his redemption, yeah. his, his redemptive sacrifice. And then you were married for 20 years to a good Catholic lady. 
Before coming into the church. Before coming yeah. into the church, and you would visit the church once in a while, so you would see the, the I shouldn't ask this on the radio, but uh, you weren't supposed to receive, did you? Oh, no. Yeah, okay. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> your wife probably wouldn't let you. She'd, she'd wrap your knuckles. But well, Not only did I not receive, but when we stood to profess the, the Nicene Creed, which Presbyterians also profess, uh, I would uh, remain silent, respectfully and nicely, and you know that. I, I adopted the postures, though. <laughs> um, but well, that what's easier to fit in when you adopt the postures? Well, yeah, and I was I was trying to be respectful, sure, you know, for the that's that's all. But during those twenty years, the the did you have any movement from a symbolic understanding of the Lord's Supper to at least a, a mental examination of the church's view on, on the real presence? Not until my conversion, and that's because uh, it would not have been a subject of inquiry for me, okay? I had not even uh, adre- addressed yet the question of sacraments, which lies at the heart of all of this. It had not occurred to me that the the mainline Protestant churches, except Lutheranism and, and uh, Anglicanism maybe, uh, did not have sacraments. Mm-hmm. Even baptism? In my life, I don't ever remember having heard it referred to in the church, the Presbyterian church, as a sacrament. I don't think they called it a sacrament. They just called it baptism. Yeah, we... I'm sure in some official way they would talk about its sacramentality. Yeah, two two sacraments. Because they clearly believed that it actually did something. That I mean, it did what it... It affected that which it symbolized. So that's the essence of sacramentality. But uh, if so, that would... That was it, yeah, yeah. and uh, so I hadn't even addressed the issue yet of uh, sacraments, which is the heart of Christianity. And okay, now here we have in this passage, though, uh, I mean, it's right in your face. It's right in your face. So, Father, talk about this passage. You want to give a, a general overview of it, or how'd you like to jump into this? Because well, it really is right in your face. It is, uh, and uh, of course, he has already, you know, led up to it, you know, by the by this time. But, um, and I'm not uh, uh, a professional uh, exegete or, or scripture <laughs> scholar, so you'll have to help me with this. But I believe. You're just a good mountain priest. Right? That's it. I'm just a, a little old parish priest. But I believe <laughs> that uh, when Christ uses the word eat, that, that is the recording of his statement uh, by John in the original language, um, it, it, does, it is not just eat like dine or even eat, that it has some connotation of uh, tear or gnaw, something deliberately used among a a number of choices of uh, words, Greek words that could have been used, um, that would have carried other connotations. So if that's true, then although the passage itself makes it clear that Christ is leading up very carefully but absolutely making it unavoidably clear to them that he is talking very physically, very literally here. He talked in parables all the time. He is not talking in a parable here. And uh, if it's true that that, you can correct me on that, but if if that's true on the choice of the word you use for eat, that only emphasizes it. So I think it's clear uh, from this passage that uh, uh, he he is telling them that this is a not just a, I hate to use this word, mystical reality, which there are mystical realities, right. which it is, but it's also a physical reality, and it's unavoidable to miss it. Yeah, and what he will eventually explain to uh, his disciples in the upper room and how Paul will understand this is not in the public con- you know, context here where he's in a large crowd. There's, there's the Jewish leaders which, as a result of this, will, will figure out how they're going to put Jesus away. Exactly. All right? So it's not a time for the description of theology. He just says this is the reality of it. It's, we as Catholics understand this as a sacramental reality. It's not mystical, nor it's not exactly as we understand things physically, there's a philosophical mystery to this, of course. That's beyond our ability to understand 
or to sensually explain, but he's talking literally, really, truly. And verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? The, that alone says that the serious religious audience knew that by the word you said that he's using. He's that, being literal. That he's being literal. Yeah, everything points to it, you know. There, there's no way around it. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. When I think of that passage in relationship to your own journey, when you were in college out exploring, looking for life. Yes. Searching, searching. Yeah. I mean, here's Jesus pointing right. to you <laughs> where you find that life that you were looking for. God is good. But I, th I think the, uh, the, the sacramentality angle is very, very important for our uh, brothers and sisters who, like me, uh, you know, were raised in, uh, in a, a Protestant faith uh, where there is no understanding. I think of my, my wonderful uh, Sunday school teacher, Rosie McCarty, in the old days, um, who's still around, by the way. I don't want to offend her if she's listening to the show because I, I love her. I think she's saintly. Yeah. Um, and, and has studied the Bible for many years, a very devout Christian, a very devout uh, Presbyterian, uh, but I, I really think has no understanding of sacramentality, right. uh, professes every Sunday the, the, uh, the belief in the communion of saints, but will walk away from a conversation that involves uh, intercession by a saint, prayer to a saint, or anything that sort of treats the saints as if they are living persons in the present. Um, things like that. The priesthood, the Eucharist, obviously. But, uh, I mean, these things were part of the Old Covenant. They were transformed and fulfilled by Christ. Um, and it's just, I don't know. I, it really is. That's which. I think that's the reason why Catholic priests, before you study theology, are called to study philosophy. So you have an understanding of things mm -hmm. and people and reality, and you understand those issues. And, and there's that mystery between, again, talking sacramentally, and I'm not a theologian or an academic either myself, you know, I'm just an old football player trying to keep from looking like a football, um, that when we think of baptism, that the mystery of what happens in baptism is that we are spiritually changed. The divine life of God comes within us. Intellectually, how does that happen? I don't know. Do we feel any different? Not necessarily. But it's true because the same God that created everything from nothing has ability through water and the words for the Holy Spirit to dwell within us. That same miracle mystery is through the words in the Eucharist, but even in more a real way. We don't become divine in baptism, but the bread, the bread and the, the wine become the substance of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, and in, the, in baptism, you know, where we talk about a, a mark on the soul that can never be removed, a change. And then you think of you know the change in an ordination of a person exactly. who becomes a priest or something. These things are, are real. But in the case of baptism, you're talking about original sin. You're talking about the soul cannot be seen, touched, weighed. And, and uh, Christians, uh, without a Catholic understanding, uh, can understand that because it's not too hard right. if it's that vague. Right. And we believe, I mean, as a Presbyterian, I believed in baptismal change. I didn't, I'm not sure I could explain it very well, but we'll come back after the break. This is Marcus Grodi. You're hearing us on Deep in Scripture. Our guest is Father Fred Wirth, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. Get an insider's look at the latest information from EWTN. 
Sign up for WINGS, EWTN's weekly email newsletter. Get the latest information about live events, special features, and guests. Connect with EWTN on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Just go to EWTN.com and click on the WINGS link to sign up. Don't miss a minute of all that's happening at EWTN. Get your WINGS today. Hi, this is Jerry Usher reminding you to listen to Vocation Boom Radio Saturday at 5 p.m. Eastern exclusively on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Each week I bring you dynamic interviews with bishops, priests, vocation directors, even seminarians and those who support them, all in an effort to assist the Holy Spirit in what is truly a vocation boom around the world. That's Vocation Boom Radio Saturdays at 5 p.m. Eastern only on EWTN Radio. CH Resources is excited to offer you Marcus Grody's latest book, Thoughts for the Journey Home. If you're not Catholic but are looking seriously at the Catholic Church, or if you've recently entered the Church, this book will provide you with wisdom and encouragement for the journey. And if you're a lifelong Catholic, it makes a great gift for family and friends you're hoping will come home. To order a copy, visit our website at chnetwork.org or call us at 1-800-664-5110. Don't forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness to how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grote. I am joined today by Father Fred Worth, former Presbyterian, now priest, and four years, right? Yes, right, sir. Father? And Only four. Well, I mean, there's so much to go in through these passages, uh, and as you've said, it isn't just one time he says it, it's very clear he says it a number of times. Um, and, and it always, as I look back now, it is amazing how easily... As a Protestant, I could say, if you want eternal life, you you must accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But that instruction isn't in the Bible anywhere. No, but it does. Uh, the Lord did say that there are many who will call on my name, say, Lord, Lord, but I will I didn't say, I, d- I did not know you. Depart from me, you evildoers. So. Yeah. Uh, that's that's in Scripture, but that's, that's a scripture. hard saying. That's a hard saying. That's a hard but it's thing. very clear right here that if you want eternal life and you want to have life within you, the context is the eating of his body and the drinking of his blood. I mean, he's just saying it here. It offended a few folk in his, in his audience. Um, and the, the one, though, I'd like you to comment on, as a, as a priest, you have the, the great privilege of the sacramental gift of grace to your parishioners, and you as an altar Christi in the, in the confessional uh, as a channel of new life for uh, your parishioners. In verse 56, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Talk about that, about the necessity of the Eucharist for continuing in Jesus. Yes, it, uh, the, that is, you know, the Catholics say in the Catechism of the Catholic Church says that uh, the uh, Eucharist is the source because it is Christ our Lord and the summit of our faith. And invariably when uh, someone comes back after many years to the church, uh, they will say that they cannot live without the Eucharist, that it you know, draws them. It is true that our community is around the Eucharist, that this sacrament, the chief of the sacraments, not the initiatory sacrament, but the chief of the sacraments, is the center of unity of the church. Uh, and that, that center, that unit, that, that is the sacrament, is Jesus Christ. It is the person of Jesus Christ. And uh, it's, um, the, these are Hard sayings, there were hard sayings at the time. What's striking, however, to me is always 
from from the, the very beginning when I started to see these things, um, having been raised as a Presbyterian, was that uh, it is not at all surprising. One would only expect uh, faithful Jews to react against this because it is absolutely contrary to the Jewish religion as understood or understandable at the time, after all. Um, but for a thousand years or 1,500 years later, for Christians to walk away just as oh, yeah. all the followers of Jesus, except the few, walked away is sort of incomprehensible. It's amazing. And, um, well, the, and this is, I, I become more and more aware of this lately as I've been thinking about the sacraments myself. Still growing, still trying to understand. I've still got the baggage from my own Lutheran and Presbyterian backgrounds, congregations. I've got all that in my background. Uh, to understand fully the Catholic understanding of things. But in all the sacraments, in fact, in all the mysteries of the church, the Trinity, the divinity of Christ, uh, the sacramental mysteries, none of them can be understood intellectually purely. How do we explain the Trinity? Right, yeah. How, how do you explain the divinity of Christ? It's not against reason. It's simply not reachable he, by unaided reason. Yeah, uh, you know, the old saying about if you stood there in front of Jesus and you would have seen a smelly Palestinian Jew. He would not have looked like the creator of the universe. And how is it possible that the creator of the universe in human form is standing before you, yet fully a part of the Trinity? I mean, we get beyond intellectually. And sensually, see, hear, touch, feel, the, all these mysteries are part, we touch them with our soul, but not with our body, per se. So, if you start challenging these things with your intellect, or because it doesn't look like Jesus or sound like Jesus, then that's when these things get tested. A thousand years later, Berengarius in about the, the 11th century, yeah. there's the, the first major challenge. And it really was because it looks like bread and it looks like wine. Of course. We're going to have to do something about it, and we're going to have to explain this away. The best thing to do is to open yourself and listen to the words of the Lord. But, uh, you know, Christ never made a mistake. He, didn't, he, he did not err. Uh, he didn't slip up. Uh, he, he didn't go back home after the Bread of Life discourse and say, gee, I didn't think they really would all go away. He who is truth spoke nothing except truth. And the truth he spoke might be so deep and have so many layers that we might spend a lifetime trying to reach them and may never reach all the layers of even a single recorded passage of his speaking, but everything he did speak was true. And you cannot simply separate out that which is inconvenient or ununderstood and put it aside. Uh, and that is ultimately what you do uh, with the Eucharist especially. Yeah, if, uh, if it's only symbolic or yeah. merely a remembrance. Uh, Apostolic succession and Peter and all that, that's equally hard, I think, almost to put, a, put aside. But in terms of the, um, the priesthood, me acting as priest, which is, you know, as a human being, why does, is the priest not a priest just for one Mass? Because he's going to die during it, you know, or immediately <laughs> following. I don't know. Because God sustains him. God acts through him. It is not the man. It is not the man. In the Mass, I am an instrumentality. Now, I'm not a robot, you know. Uh, I am me. I am I. And uh, I am acting, but it is mystically and truly the hands of Christ himself who holds Christ himself at the altar. And, uh, and people it is really and truly and substantially, as opposed to uh, mystically, it is mystically, truly, really, physically, substantially, the body is the blood of Christ. Uh, this this requires faith, and uh, you know what? It, if more than one writer has said, if if it were not, uh, if both the accidents and the substance were changed, we would not be able to bear it. You know, just as who can yeah. truly see the face of God and live? 
but it is uh, the the priesthood is intimately connected with it, and uh, it is it, it is something that you know simply has to be accepted. And if we don't accept the idea of sacramental reality, which is different than the natural reality that is around us, sacramental reality, nor is it. It's also different from just pure mystical reality. It's it's a, it's a sacramental reality. If you don't recognize that uniqueness, then you end up denying the power of baptism. You deny that exactly. anything happening in the, uh, in confirmation, of course, the Eucharist. You're denying that anything really happened in marriage when we believe that two became one. But what do we mean by that? There's a sacramental reality there. It's real. It has to be acted on. But I think particularly, not just you know, you know, healing of the sick or your ordination, but if you don't believe in the sacramental reality, then, then we've got a problem coming to you in the box. Absolutely. Well, you have a problem coming to me for any sacrament if I'm not a priest. And, uh, yeah. You know, Am I going to share my sins with you if I don't <laughs> understand sacramentally what's going on here? <laughs> Well, our, our, our separated brothers and sisters uh, uh, have no trouble understanding, many of them. These days it's hard to say who, who knows what or believes what because there's so many divisions within divisions. Oh, yeah. Right. But uh, most, at least of what I always call the mainline Protestant churches, uh, believed in the virgin birth. Right. They believe that the Virgin Mary conceived miraculously, <laughs> right? Well, we, we believe... We, we're actually very familiar with changes uh, in accidents and substances all the time in our life. So it's not so much uh, the—I I think most Protestants would, would say, yeah, we believe that it is not a parable, but that Christ actually transformed uh, the quantity of bread and fish, uh, uh, you know, in feeding the thousands. I believe that he— uh, uh, changed uh, the substance of water into wine at Cana. I don't think that's, you know, a false story. I believe in the virgin birth, but I don't believe in the Eucharist. I, I, I think that is a parable, or I think he is, you know, saying something yeah. different here. And you, you have to say, how does this follow? Right. And, and the answer is, of course, that uh, it was necessary in order to justify the, the separation that was taking place yeah. and, and what grew from that. But uh, scripturally, there is simply no reason yeah. to, to differentiate these kinds which, of actions. Which was why Luther was yelling at the other reformers. To, he wanted to preserve what Scripture said. He himself had been poorly formed philosophically, so he was rejecting the, the, the scholastics' yeah. understanding of the change of, of substance. But with the so. I mean, he was going to. It's it's the it's the body of Jesus. He yelled in German. It is my. This is my body. This is my body. But um, yet, still, the problem with the physicality of it. And I think one of the reasons is that, it you know, the miraculous nature of the creation out of nothing. Bingo. But that happened a long time ago, so I can put it up there. Trinity. I don't want to explain that, but it's out there. Divinity of Christ. It's out there. The problem with the sacraments is they're not out there. Right. Baptism, I don't feel any different. Yeah. I go into the confessional, I don't feel any different. Marriage, well, where's the oneness? The Eucharist, excuse me, but it tastes like bread and wine. So all of a sudden we're dealing right immediately with the reality of the mystery of these sacraments. And so people that want to trust their intellect or trust their senses more than trusting in the revelation of God end up doubting because exactly. it's not. Let's take another break, Father. We'll come back because we want to deal with the last part of chapter 6 of John because it brings it all the way down to the apostles. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Father Fred Wirth, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. The Coming Home Network International is a non-profit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. 
It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are on the journey and interested in learning more about the Coming Home Network International or know someone who's thinking of becoming Catholic, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. Father Fred Wirth and I have a good time talking between times. There's so much to cover in this in this short period. But, Father, I'm going to read uh, verses 66 through 71, and I know you wanted to focus a bit on these. Here we have the end of this long discourse and all the experience of, of uh, what Christ has said. And then, after this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer went about with him. Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also wish to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you were the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was to betray him. Yeah. Once again, uh, it is convenient for people to uh, look at Scripture passages and say, uh, Christ knew this uh, because he was uh, divine as well as man. Uh, and then at another time say, well, how do we know Christ knew that? Christ didn't necessarily know that. But it is clear you know, from this passage, this is not at the Last Supper, and it is clear that uh, he is saying Judas you know, will betray him, uh, and significantly that he chose 12, knowing, I say knowing from the beginning, that Judas would fall away. Um, he has offered the truth to the crowds, which you've nicely described as being winnowed down. Yeah. And they did. You know, they're, they're, they're walking away. They're falling away. And finally, the larger crowd of Christ's disciples have turned away and followed him no more because of these words he has spoken. Yeah. And so we're down to the 12, and one of them, is, is going to go. Yeah. And the 12 we're down to, or the 11, right. and, and Judas's replacement, Matthias, uh, are the apostles. And this is the same profession of faith that Simon Peter makes here uh, that he makes when Christ says, flesh and blood is not revealed this to you, but my Father in his house, and I will you know, give you the, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And, um, so the apostolic uh, once again, many places, many places in, in the Gospels, the uh, commissioning of the mm -hmm. apostles and the, uh, him saying, you know, I, I, I'm going to build my church on you is quite clear. I mean, you know, gee, well, you know, how you get around that? Uh, and that's also in here. So this passage is a little short into this. It's, it's very beautiful, but it also is... Uh, Lot, got a lot of significance. Well, it will, as you said, it will be later that Judas will be tempted and then will succumb to the temptation and will betray Jesus. But here we see in the context of his presentation of the radical teaching on the Eucharist that is the reference that Judas will go. So again, this winnowing down to Peter, but even then beyond to one of his own. The seed is going to be there. You know, I can't, it says in verse 6, many of the disciples drew back and no longer went about with him. Earlier, it will say in verse 60, many of the disciples, when he heard it, said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Who can accept this? Right. Yeah. and That's true. It, you know, if you're relying on yourself, you know, if you're yeah. the criteria. Your, your judgment is the criteria. You cannot. Uh, this verse 69, when Peter responds, <clears throat> to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. All right. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. In that use of the word, we, we've believed and have come to know, you know, imply this, 
this movement, this growth. As we have believed, as we have made an act of faith and come to know, as a result of that faith, we have now learned. We have now, now we know. Now we, we know. <laughs> we have seen and know. Uh, uh, another writer I, I remember <clears throat> reading is that we, we move from believing to realizing. And uh, as you have, you, you, you believe in order to understand. You don't understand in order to believe. God has to give you, as he did for me, he's got to open, open up your heart and your mind uh, so that you can understand. And, and if sometimes you, if you set out to understand it all yourself in order to give God the privilege of receiving your faith, <laughs> you're not going to get there. And you were looking, you know, back in college yourself. You were. I was looking. looking I was looking to figure it out myself. Yeah, you were trying to figure it out yourself <laughs> and exploring it with uh, Eastern philosophies and religions, uh, which, uh, you know, they're a shadow uh-huh. of of the truth. There's there's a shadow there. They pray. You know, there's a, a lot of stuff that's a shadow of the truth, but it's not. It's not straight on. It's not. It's not what God intends for us. But what, one thing that I was wanted to ask you, uh, coming from a Presbyterian and then kind of a wandering Presbyterian background, and then twenty years uh, married to a Catholic, but not actually open to the Catholic Church, and then becoming Catholic, and then going through seminary and becoming a priest. It's one thing to believe, accept the dogma that when the words of consecration are said, the bread becomes the body of our Lord and the wine becomes the blood of our Lord Jesus. It's one thing to accept the dogma, but to realize it might take a while. Did you have that experience yourself? Are you still well, on the journey? I mean, I'm still, on, I'm still oh, on the journey of that myself in a sense. Oh yeah, every Mass uh, is a miracle. And every Mass is eternal. You're out... Um, you're participating in an eternal act. I, I always have that feeling. So uh, there is no, we will never accept uh, within the range of our own human capability, even as a transformed, divinized, if you will, uh, in the world to come um, after, after death. And right. How many years of purgatory? <laughs> I, I don't know. How many, how many hundreds of thousands? Uh, but no, uh, we will still be human, but we will be in Christ. Understand that one. That's yeah. another one, right? Yeah, another great mystery. Um, uh, and then, then we will understand so much more. Uh, but uh, we cannot understand the depths of it all now. So every, every day, every Mass is, a, you know, continuing movement toward that, uh, even for me. But uh, that, that God would take a... It's easy to say in general terms, when you're thinking of someone else, that God would take a f- completely fallible, weak human being and use him as his divine instrument, as his priest is easier to accept than when you realize it is yourself that is, you know, that is incomprehensible <laughs> to me. But God, I, I submit, to, I submit to God's, you know, willingness. It's the greatest yeah. privilege, the greatest everything. Well, there's that statement in the Mass that we say, Lord, I am not worthy to receive you. Only say the word and I shall be healed. And I see that as a parallel of the statement of that father when he says to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Help my unbelief, yes. But that, that's really, those two statements are really a, a surrendering of myself to Christ, asking for his grace and his divinity to help us push aside the barriers that prevent us from fully receiving our Lord Jesus. Um, you know, Jesus said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. And then he said, uh, I think it's in John 14 that uh, no one comes to the Father except by me. So we've got to be in Jesus. 
And so that's why it's so important that we take these passages in John 6 seriously, because these are where he says how we are in him. That's right. It is. Um, and it, uh, it is not understood by Catholics generally much better than it is, I mean, most Catholics, than it is by most Protestants, uh, this uh, communion that, that we are in. But uh, it is quite real. And while it is imperfect in this world, uh, and now you're talking about the church. I mean, yeah. you know, that's that's right. the church, and it may be uh, imperfect in this world, but it is it is quite real, and it goes right down to the individual. You know, as well as the entire body. None of us is saved in isolation. Right. You know, right. This is not. Um, and God that's created the world, the universe, and all these other people to save me. No, <laughs> the, the church is from the beginning. From the Old Testament on, we're going back to this as, you know, a fulfillment, great fulfillment, but <laughs> of the Old Covenant, uh, from the beginning, there's a chosen people. It is the individual within the community. And when we step outside of the community, we fall away from the community, we're falling away from the body of Christ. And it, how dangerous is that? Yeah, there's, that's, again, that's connected with the mystery of baptism through which we become a part of that body, but isn't merely, you know, I'm saved by my baptism, that we are a part of the family. That's the channel which we receive the graces so that we aren't doing it apart from our Lord Jesus. We can understand that you can fall away from that family. You can stalk away from it angry. You can, you know, I think it was St. Philip Neri who used to pray, maybe every day, He's one of the greatest saints of the Counter-Reformation. You know, man, was, his holiness was legendary uh, while he was on this earth. And he would pray, My Jesus, if you do not keep your hand on Philip this day, he is sure to betray you. <laughs> and that's part of what it means to uh, grow in sainthood is to recognize your own faults. I mean, that's what the saints uh, are modeling for us, each one of us. Father, we thank you for joining us on the program today. Appreciate you. Thank you, Mark. You joining us and dealing with this important passage, which is not just for us to appreciate this, but it also helps us understand that great priesthood to which you've been called. And, and thank you for your service of our Lord you. through your, the priesthood. Thank you all for joining us on this program. I hope it's been an encouragement to you. If you're not a Catholic, look at those passages in John 6, all of John 6, and recognize that as Father Word said, Jesus never lied. He was telling us the truth. So let's be close to Jesus and his church. God bless.